Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. It is a pleasure to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Today we celebrate the life of a man who played more than 100 games in the hoops at Geelong, but he's better known for other things. He's the king of the kids. His name is Kevin Sheehan. Shifter, welcome. Oh, great to be with you, Pete, uh, once again. You are the king of the kids, and you have been for a long time. Yeah, pretty lucky. I think uh, right place, right time to uh, to get a job in development. Um, I'm very grateful to a fellow called Bill McMaster, actually, that uh, not only did he give me a, the opportunity down at Geelong to play the game, but a couple of years after that, tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, the league has, has asked all clubs, or 12 clubs back then, uh, to have a promotions officer. Would you like to do that job? And uh, I jumped at it. I was a pretty bored accountant, uh, and I love my footy. I love people. Um, worked a little bit in personnel, and so to be thrust in at 23 years of age as a, in, into the full-time role in working with, I suppose, uh, the broader talent at that stage, just young kids and coaching in schools to eventually coaching the scholarship squads of Geelong whilst I was playing. So I've had a probably a lifeline, uh, lifelong sort of experience in seeing youngsters come through and reach their potential. I reckon I've known you for more than 30 years uh, from the days when I started with Channel 7 and I don't think in that 30 years I've ever called you Kevin. Um, (laughs) Where did Shifter come from? Well, it's one of those, you'll get things done. It's the spanner. You know, if there's a spanner in the works, you get a shifter to fix it. Because when I worked at Geelong, actually, I was, uh, at one point in time, I was their development manager. I was an assistant coach. I raised the money for the footy trip, uh, organised everything. And because you're the one full-timer that uh, was on the playing list through those periods. So uh, it was given to me back in those days. They called me shifty at times. Uh, you had to be as a small forward to try and uh, actually conjure up a goal or to. So though both those nicknames were pretty prevalent through uh, through that era. What about um, keeping yourself young? They talk about if you associate yourself with young people, despite the fact that you might be getting yep. a little bit older, that it keeps you young. Is that a, a theory you subscribe to? There's no doubt, Pete. No doubt. I'm the luckiest man alive, I think, to be continually uh, focusing most weekends on looking at the best talent in, in the nation. Uh, we talk about the best under-18 players, of which uh, that's 80% of the draft are young, young men coming in uh, uh, for their first time to be eligible to, to play 
place. So we'll watch our championships right across Australia. Of course, in Victoria, it's the TAC Cup, but then it unfolds to the Vic Country, Vic Metro, SAWA and the Allies. They become the second division that, that join us. And and to look at those best players is a, is a wonderful thrill, really, because you, you don't know what you're going to see as you go to the ground. Uh, and at the end of it, you might have seen five stars about to become household names in the game. And we mix with those young men too because we do pick our best academy. The best kids in the nation are chosen and uh, we work closely with them. Uh, we work with their parents as well. So we follow their dreams right throughout the two or three years that uh, that we have a group with us. Uh, and we get to share draft night. With, uh, Pete, we've shared that with you. We draft have. day over yeah. the years. Uh, uh, yes, we've been broadcasting the draft uh, now for, well, 25 years It's been we've broadcast it. So I've enjoyed every one of those days because they are special in the lives of uh, about the 80, 80 players each year get that chance. So uh, that's a super day to be involved in the game and it, that certainly keeps you young. I guess you take a, a great deal of pride, Shifter, from the journey because you see the journey begin and then as these men go through their, their careers and they achieve so much, sometimes individually but mostly team success, you must feel as though you're a little part of that build-up. Yeah, I call myself, I suppose, a fly on the wall. You've been around for many of the conversations or you've been the guy on the hill watching that practice match. Sometimes it's, uh, we talk to Buddy, I talk about another uh, Hawthorne champion that uh, become one of the greats of the game. Um, I'd been to a practice match for Vic Country under 16 level at Oakley one day and uh, then wandered into the G after that to watch Collingwood play Geelong. Parked in the car park, run into Woofer, Bobby Davis, who had known through my Geelong days very, very well. And up he comes and says, look, tell us. He's always after an angle, of course, the old Woofer, and trying to get one up for the cats. And he said, the father-son rule. He said, how does it work? Does it work if you adopt them? And I'm saying, where the devil are you coming from here, Bobby? Where are you coming from? He said, well, there's a boy down around our way, you know. He said, apparently last week, and he sort of talks at the corner of the mouth as if it's a secret here. He says, uh, he's done pretty well on the boo, this boy. And he's just tucked away there. I thought, if I could adopt him, can we get him up as a father-son? Just a young kid he is. I said, it wouldn't be Luke Hodge, would it? And he nearly died. He nearly died in front of me because he couldn't believe I'd plucked the name Mm. because I'd been at this Vic Country trial everyone was talking about the boy in front of us which was Luke Hodge that had debuted for Colac the, the week before at age 15 and a half something like that and had kicked four or five goals so he was the talk uh, you know uh, over at Oakley just an hour or two earlier so I wasn't that smart it was just that I happened to be in the right place again and I said to Bobby look I don't think that one's going to work I think the football <laughs> world will know about this Luke Hodge over the next number of months he looks like being a star for Vic Country in the upcoming championships so the likes of Bob Davis and all of the recruiters and all of the people who watch football see these young kids going up through the ranks and and you've seen so many over the years. I quote you and, and some other very special people a bit like Bart Cummings. A lot of people can look at horses mm. but when JB Cummings looked at a horse he saw something that other people didn't see. Yeah well I suppose you, you, you can see them uh, in trials as we, we talk about the two examples with Franklin and Hodge but sometimes it's in 
the national championships in tough conditions. And and uh, I can think of two in particular. It was 1988. Uh, we're up in Canberra. It was the days of the, the under-17s. It was the days also of just one Victorian underage side. And they were dominating the championships right through a period of uh, eight or nine years. Ray Jordan was the coach. So I learned a lot from Slug. A yeah, great a few new words, probably. A few new words along the way. A great character, but a great technical coach as well. And uh, we had quite a number of good boys at our disposal playing for the Vicks. It was a mud heap. I remember Bob Hawke was watching the game. He presented the All-Australian jumpers, and he presented them to two boys that went on to be great players. I had the pleasure of seeing them plough through the mud, jump on shoulders, one of them did, and the other one just dodged in and out them. We're talking about Wayne Carey and Rob Harvey. To see them at 16 was just a brilliant experience. Earlier in that day, or one of the games, early in the day, uh, Slug was to open. We are having a cup of tea before we uh, headed off to the ground. And the boys haven't kicked a kick in the car park. And there's Wayne Carey taking hangers on the ba- on the backs of his teammates on this asphalt in the car park. Before <laughs> He said, would you get out and tell that silly idiot to stop doing that? You know, you're going to play set our forward a bit later today. We can't get you hurt. But uh, he was a brilliant uh, young player, Wayne Carey. Just uh, such a natural athlete and... And, uh, yeah, to see those sort of marks taken probably a couple of years before the rest of the football world got to appreciate how good he was. And, and Rob Harvey, the way those uh, those withering runs through the midfield mm. to see him do that in the mud up there in Canberra. We knew we had someone special. And I think it was just weeks later he debuted at a very young age for, for St Kilda late in that same season and went on to be one of the great champions or the two of the great champions of the game. When they were coming up through the rank shifter, was it more about just pure football ability and these days, is it a bit more about the person as well, that you want to get the full package, if you like? You might get the best player yep. at the draft, but he has to be the sort of person who's going to fit well into the football environment too. Yeah, yeah Pete, there's probably three things overall. They've got to have some great talent, and talent can be defined in many different ways and have different angles to it. But then they've got to be very competitive. Uh, it's a full-time environment. There's going to be ups and downs along the way. Uh, personally, uh, you'll, you'll struggle a wee bit at the start, you might get dropped or pushed aside beaten by a better player, all that's going to happen, uh, then you've got to have good character to get through all of that so the clubs will check all of that out and uh, good character can be within the game, it can be within the community, not all of them are great community character people but geez, you've got to be a great teammate in the locker room you've got to be able to get on with people and uh, I think people get a bit mixed up with that particular definition that uh, some fellas are just great in the group, you know, they they are terrific teammates, great in the locker room, respectful of their mates, work hard together, but might be a wee bit loose with other other character traits away from the team environment. Um, so you just need to separate all of those and make sure that uh, as a selector or as a recruiter that you're getting one that will mix very, very well in the professional environment and get the best out of himself. Ultimately, that's what clubs want to know. Will he do the work and get the best out of this raw potential he's got? And, and sometimes when you're dealing with kids who are just 18 years of age, it's very hard to, to be able to read that in, to, to make those judgments perfectly accurately. You can be a wee bit misled, you can be a little bit conned by the someone that sells himself pretty well and then it, it all unfolds and he doesn't really want to do the work, he wants to have it on his own terms and that's where clubs will make the odd mistake and uh, you, yeah, you can see why. We'll talk more about the upcoming draft later in the program because they say it's going to be a beauty and we'll get your viewpoint on that but those days when we were sitting there and we were doing the draft together and I think mostly we were doing it online 
Did you ever think that it would become as big as it has become now, that it's a, a very big national television production? Well, Pete, I did go to the first draft. That was back in 86 at uh, 120 Jollymont Road. And we had a whiteboard I was going to say, names on a whiteboard. We had the names on a whiteboard. <laughs> uh, there might have been 30 people in the room. Now, I'm not that good that I can remember all of it, but I did look up the minute book. So we did have it minuted uh, in, our, in our archives there at AFL. I think it was about the 20th year where I went back to have a look and about 20 in the room. The pie and sauce, uh, the whiteboard, and we had a new machine over in the corner. I do remember this. It was the fax machine, the brand new machine that we could hardly use. The whiz-bang things. The whiz-bang fax machine. (laughs) So I think we faxed out the names of those chosen with Martin Leslie at uh, number one, and I think Alistair Lynch might have been at number 50 in that very first year. Uh, Faxed it out later in the day, uh, and it got a bit of a run in the paper the next day. That's about all you could say about it. Uh, 32 years ago, that first draft. Um, I think 20, then, uh, yeah, 25 years ago, started to broadcast it. Mm. Now you, uh, well, you could potentially uh, fill an auditorium here in Melbourne or Adelaide or Perth uh, if you're to run the draft in uh, in these football mad cities. We even get big crowds in Sydney now, and it's now in prime time on Fox, of course, as uh, people follow the hopes and dreams of, uh, well, normally about 2,000 nominate every year and 80 get their name called. And so that's uh, both a brilliant night for those chosen. And of course, heartbreaking for those that are overlooked, but you've got to keep telling the stories of the Brett Kirks of the world that are overlooked multiple times, or Sam Mitchell that become champions of the game, become stronger, tougher, harder through that disappointment, more resilient people, uh, driven to succeed, and they overcome that that uh, that hurt right there at the start. But for those uh, that take it at number one, there's a special pressure comes with that. We mm. see that. Uh, they're watched in every move, and so I suppose the first choices of every club as the hopes and dreams of uh, not just the boy, but the club rest on uh, this boy being a player, you know. And uh, we're wrapped with the boys that were taken last year. The top ten have all played to date. Mm. Um, they've all had their moments too, so some great flashes of their enormous talent. And uh, we look forward to them beca- becoming really genuine household names in our game in the next couple of years. It's an amazing journey for them. And many years ago, there was a young fellow who probably had those same hopes and dreams. It was you. And when we come back on the other side of the break, I want to find out how your football journey began. Kevin Sheen is my special guest, the AFL's national talent and international manager. And he is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. More with Shifter after the break. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. And what a pleasure it is to have Kevin Sheen as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We spoke about the journey beginning for all of these young men. Shifter, where did the football journey begin for you? Because you were a Bendigo boy. Mm, yeah, Santos Footy Club. In fact, uh, Marish Brothers College up there in Bendigo. So Carlton's country zone in those days. So Santos coached by Delicate De- Des Dixon. So some of the older listeners would remember Delicate Des. Des yes, delicate was not exactly not the way exactly that he was, he was referred to. Yeah, but he was uh, he was our coach, and Ron Best was uh, also a coach of mine after delicate Des. Uh, and uh, I'd had four years at Santos Footy Club, Carlton's Country Zone. They had a lot of good players ahead of me as Rovers: uh, Rod Ashman, Trevor Keogh, Brian Walsh, all those Vinnie Cotoggio, all of Jimmy mm. Buckley. There was a host of them. It was a mosquito fleet, and so I was lucky enough. To, we mentioned Bill McMaster at the start. He he dropped in one day to our hotel. 
Hotel. The Rising Sun, which we've still got these days, the family, had it now for over 60 years. And and uh, I was working in the bottle shop one day when big, tall, red-headed fella come round the corner with a smaller, shorter guy that I'd played against. Uh, I'd played against a fella called Colin Rice, who'd been a Geelong Rover. He was captain, coach of South Bendigo. And he was with Bill, and they inquired as to whether I'd be interested in going down to Geelong to play. I'd never been to Geelong in my life. Been to Melbourne many, many times, and, uh, well, I jumped at the chance. I couldn't believe that, I suppose, after four or five years um, that, uh, you know, I had a, a secret dream to, to play in the then VFL, but, uh, uh, you know, I'd been not given that chance, so I suppose it was going to pass me by. I was 20 years of age. Um, I'd won a best and fairest in the premiership up there, and I was a good player in that competition, but it looked like the others were way ahead of me, but to get that chance was just a, a brilliant moment in my life, and I jumped at it with two hands and, and went down there in 1974 to be coached by the great Polly Farmer. Uh, and uh, I become great mates with Paul. Uh, I worked for him. I was a student at the start down there, and I worked for him on a Wednesday and featured. In those days, with no computers, so I was doing the form for the quaddy out of the Sporting Globe in those days. Yeah, and getting twenty bucks. Done that over the years. I was getting the twenty bucks in the pocket by lunchtime <laughs> on a Wednesday, and it wasn't bad for a student. I was doing that down in Polly's office there at his tyre business, and uh, maybe it helped me get a game as well. So training on Tuesday night and Thursday night, and playing on the weekend. Yeah, Monday night as well and you train Sunday morning um, but uh, those days look Polly I think he's way ahead of his time he expected the the guys to, to follow his lifestyle he didn't drink nor smoke um, he trained twice a day he was a fanatic on skill development on working on his skills for every moment he had would even muck around their hand passing balls in in through tyres and, and and he look I just followed every word that man said love the way he went about it but uh, because he expected all of the players to be fully professional in their approach to things, he got offside with a few. But I just think 30 years on, he would have been a wonderful coach in the modern era. Um, but look, I think he is still the best player on the track with his skills. He would have been in his 40s then, but his skills were enormous. He's uh, not just his uh, drop punts, but his torpedo punts, his stab passes and drop kicks, even reverse torpedoes. He was unbelievably skillful. And his hand passing, well, you just had to be out there on the track to see him. Because he trained with the team even back then, the, the uh, circle work or line drill Polly would be in it when he was coaching there in the in the early seventies. What sort of a player were you, Shifter? Well, uh, my son, one of my sons said he asked a bloke uh, one day, uh, what was he like? And the bloke said, yeah, good, honest battler. Mm. Well, you'd hope, you'd hope that, uh, yeah, I, was th- I don't mind that. I don't mind being called honest and a battler. Look, I'd say that, that uh, I was skillful, courageous and hardworking would be the, probably the best. I'd hate to hear myself talking about me, the young 80-year-old footballer, because I say he's probably a bit too slow to make the game. But, gee, um, I loved every minute of the opportunities I was given and uh, uh, late in my career I, I actually got to a point where I got to 99 games and was dropped oh. and it was about six games to go in the year and and anyway, we, I was a bit of a Vanderhum, you know, so the wet tracker won the cup in 76 while I was playing through that era. So I was the wet tracker, played well on the wet, and so if it looked like raining, they're going to put me in. So on the 99 game, six weeks 
before the year ended, I was dropped. The last game of the year, we were playing Essendon out at uh, Waverley Park. And, uh, and for a double chance in the finals, there were 80,000 people. It was a massive game. So at uh, quarter past 10, they pulled me out of the reserves and said, you're in, it's pouring outside. You beauty, it was going to be my 100th game. So rung my parents, they've come down, they've watched most of the games I've played, come down from Bendigo. Anyway, 10 to 2, the sun come out. And so they said, no, nah, you're out again. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, you're out again. And so there I am on the third tier of the Waverley, of, of Waverley Park, watching them run through my banner. It had the 100 games up on the banner. Oh, no. But unfortunately, I wasn't quite there. I was, uh, I was back in the back in the civvies. And I had to wait till June the next year at the MCG to, to run out and play my 100th game. So I just got past. 100, but look, um, loved it every minute of it at the football club, and uh, uh, Geelong was very much part of my life through that 10 year period. Apart from your 100th shifter, what was your favourite game? When you close your eyes and you think back about being part of a special game, which one is it? Um, well, we had a win and a final against the Western Bulldogs out there at Waverley Park. Um, uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. And, and probably Waverley again. I was lucky enough to kick six against the Swans out there at Waverley Park. In those days, you played the whole game. So you're roving through the midfield and then changing up forward. And so that was the game that you can, well, I, I could do a few years ago. Recall in your, your mind as you go over things, some of those six goals were it all went for you. The ball sort of fell your way a little bit and you're able to, to be as accurate as you possibly could be. So that was fairly special to be part of that. But I think in 76, when we, we, we played finals, thoroughly remember that. Even uh, even those uh, heartbreaking defeats in the early 80s in prelim finals, well, that was heart-wrenching. But look, all of those experiences make you a pretty tougher, more resilient person because at the end of the day, it's just a game. It's just a small part of your life that 10 years goes pretty quickly. And uh, providing you can sort of go away thinking you gave it your best shot. Uh, as Tommy Hafey, one of our I've worked yeah. with Tommy. Uh, you'll never die wondering, you know, if you've given it a crack. And uh, that's my approach to the advice I give to any young fella. Don't get into your mid-30s and, and be one of those if-onlys. If only I had have done this or that. Uh, put it all out on the table. And uh, I think that's my greatest memory, that, you know, sharing that, hearing from Tommy Hafey, sharing that with other young players, that uh, don't leave anything in the tank at all. And, and you'll, you'll die a pretty happy person that you gave it your best shot, even if you didn't end up the great champion of the game even to play one or two games might be a great reward for someone that was less talented so all of those things uh, uh, live in my memory pretty clearly I think towards the end of your tenure at Geelong you played a lot of seconds footy and with some success as well they were a pretty good team the Geelong twos in those days yeah so I had the option that when si- uh, Gary Sidebottom was traded uh, I was offered up in the trade to go to St Kilda I had a good record against St Kilda and I had barrack for them as a kid so it was tempting but being full time at the club I, I want to stay at the club they offered me captain of the reserves assistant assistant to the coach all of those sorts of roles so I continued to play as quite a few clubs had older players that would play uh, in those days it wasn't a case of money it was a case of where you felt comfortable and maybe I might have slid out another 30 or 40 or 50 games somewhere else but uh, I loved the football club and uh, yeah ended up an assistant coach there before going to the league at the end of 83. So how did you find your way to the league all of a 
a sudden. Here you are at yeah. the Geelong Football Club and then you find your way down to Jollymont. Yeah, so in the days of being the promotions officer, I was working alongside the likes of Kevin Sheedy, Robbie Flower, Kelvin Matthews, as every club had a promotions guy. And Alan Swab had said to me, look, uh, we need someone in here. It's getting bigger now to actually run the development area. And he waited 12 months. <laughs> he put it to me and I said, look, I'm loving the coaching. And at the end of that next 12 months, he then said to me, look, you've got to make your mind up. It has to be filled this spot. We just can't wait any longer. And, and I was working with Tommy Hafey and Tommy was fighting with the committee. I think he did that at a few clubs. Yeah. And I thought, this is not going to end up all that good. <laughs> I think I'm best off actually getting out of the coaching and going into the development manager job that was offered to me at uh, the VFL. So uh, I still had you know, the, the passion for picking teams and coaching, got closely involved then with Slug Jordan and the Victorian mm-hmm. under-17s and, of course, become team manager for the State of Origin team through that period as well. They were little perks to the job. My real job was to help grow the game uh, in schools, uh, get coach education on the go. We got the Herald Sun Shield started back in that era. So things like that that... Uh, broadly recognise that our game was being challenged even back then by all of the other sports that were available then to kids in schools and we had to compete it was no longer the monopoly of cricket in the summer and uh, and football in the winter, all the other things that were available were there and we had to compete with all of those and so that was my starting point through Alan Swab way back then and Alan Aylett too by the way I remember those days, you mentioned the Herald Shield brings back some fond memories for me because as a young fellow they used to play that before the Tuesday night games at Waverley so we would do those on Channel 7 but we'd also do the schoolboys games and they'd replay them on a Saturday morning and Bobby Skilton and I used to call those games and they'd play the second half and I think it was a good grounding as a broadcaster because there you were at Waverley seeing people you'd never seen before in school jumpers with numbers that were about four inches big in some cases uh, they were great days. I watched many of those games myself just in my role and little Flea Waitman and Mark Lee and yeah. I think Melbourne High School I might have been as they brought boys down from their country zone in those days and put them into school to finish off their schooling. So how things have changed under this draft system now that we've got a wonderful competition called the TAC Cup here in Victoria where the boys of Gippsland or Bendigo or the Murray Region or Ballarat, they can stay at home, still complete their schooling and play in an elite competition without having to shift at the age of 16 or 17, as you had to way back then for most boys that come down to pursue a potential then VFL career. So there's been massive change. But yes, uh, I, I do remember those games that were broadcast. And uh, it's great to see it. I read this week in the paper, the Herald Sun Shield. Now with boys and girls playing in it, they launched mm. the, that competition just uh, just during the week. And it again will have its uh, a grand finals played. It will be down at Geelong uh, at the, the GMHBA Stadium and at the MCG, so they're still playing at those famous venues for their finals and it's wonderful to see that that passion that schools have got still for our game. You touched on your role with State of Origin Shifter. I want to explore that when we come back on the other side of the break. It's probably fitting we should talk about State of Origin because of all the talk in rugby league at the moment is about State of Origin. It's about to come down to Melbourne and that'll be a great occasion, but I want to talk about the great occasions that we had when State of Origin was big and Shifter was right there at the forefront. Kevin Sheen is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. 
And Kevin Sheen is my special guest, the AFL's national talent and international manager, member of the AFL's Football Operations Subcommittee, selector for the AFL Rising Star Award. But Shifter, one thing that you were was heavily involved in State of Origin, and boy, it was big when it was up and going. I was pretty blessed. Again, it's the right place, right time. So it was in 84 and I joined the league as a bit of a, an aside to your real job. I was made the team manager for, for the State of Origin. Just the two games a year, you'd play SA and WA. And in this particular first year, uh, the selection group included Alan Jeans, the coach, and of course the great EJ Witten, who in those days watched all of the Geelong games, would call those games. And uh, the short of it, the, the first... Um, game that were due to play was against uh, WA and uh, there was a boy down at Geelong that uh, had just uh, won a clearance to, to start his career and that boy was Gary Ablett Senior, cleared of course by Hawthorne for about 60,000 and of course within half a dozen games it was pretty obvious this boy was pretty special player so Teddy Whitten would come in before the meeting with Alan Jean Jeans and the selectors, including the likes of Ian Ridley and Graham mm-hmm. Richmond, uh, and said, gee, this kid's going good. Um, I reckon he's already better than Dennis Marshall. He could end up as good as Polly Farmer. That's how good he is. But how am I going to get him up with Yabby, who, of course, cleared him from Orphan for 60 grand? I'm not going to be able to get him up. And so we had a bit of a practice run on how it might unfold for 10 or 15 minutes, and you'd go into the meeting. So we get to about the third of the meetings, another three weeks of great Gary Ablett form. And he, he went with, we've just got to pick him, Yab, we've just got to pick him. And uh, Yabby Jeans went with the old uh, three phases of the game. He's very fa- famous for saying that the ball, he won't go the other way, which meant he won't shackle, tackle and chase the opponent. Um, he's good when he's got it. He's good when it's in dispute, but he won't go the other way. And EJ just retorted with, he doesn't have to go the flame another way. He's got the ball the whole time. He's a champion. <laughs> we champions don't have to go the other way, Yabby. And then Alan Jean said, look, he's a different boy. He said he mightn't even turn up. And from that moment, Teddy said, well, he'll be my boy. My boy will turn up. I'll pick him up. I'll get him to the, I'll get him to the airport. I'll get him to Perth. Well, the short of it is he kicked eight goals in Perth in his 15th senior game. He'd played a half a dozen at Hawthorne and, and just a few more than that at Geelong. And he put on this most magnificent display that, to this day I've ever seen by a young player in a big game. There were 40,000 there. Victoria were beaten by by uh, WA and this Ablett, the new kid on the block, kicked eight in spectacular fashion way back in uh, 1984. And they become great mates. And you might remember the, the famous lap day like years on, 10 years on, 11 years on it was in 95 when, when EJ yeah. gave his final lap there at the MCG. Gary Ablett was the captain of the Victorian State of Origin side that day. They were great mates through that whole period. He paid back his his mate uh, and uh, of course uh, EJ had that wonderful passion. I think uh, he along with Neil Curley and Mel Brown helped set up the national competition. They they created that rivalry between the states where, where every time the Vicks went away there'd be 40,000 there in SA or WA promoted by these guys that yeah. were at each other's throats in the, in the weeks leading up but were great mates behind the scenes. So we didn't need an integrated 
marketing plan to fill the to fill the grounds. We just had to let these guys loose. And talking t- about the game, you talked about EJ's passion shifter, and there was no doubt that it was there. But there was also that little bit of theatrical stuff that he loved doing. He he would always do what was needed. And I remember speaking to him a couple of times before state games, and before the camera started rolling, he say, well, "What do you want from me? Yeah, do you want a bit of?" Do you want a bit of argy-bargy? Do you yeah. want a bit of controversy? And he'd always give you what you wanted. There are some legendary stories about EJ. Have you got any that you could tell us? Well, I loved that game, 1989. So it was this the state game back in Victoria. We come back here in 80. We played away right through the 80s. So in 15 years, it was the first game back in Victoria. We're playing SA at the MCG. On a Massive, mud heap. On a mud heap, as it turned out. I remember in the game, uh, Dermot Brett and Tim Watson, Simon Madden was the captain, uh, Flea Waitman, vice captain. It was a super team. Tim Darcy, Andrew Buse, I'll go through Chris Langford mm. uh, down in in deep defence, but we had access to Jason Dunstall at, uh, at Victoria. He was a Queenslander, of course, but the rules were How a bit did that out. happen? I think the VFL might have been running the game in those <laughs> days. So uh, Jason was available for Victoria and, of course, so was Tony Lockett. And it was in the era of Brian Taylor, BT, and, of course, Michael Roach. And the old two full forwards won't work sort of theory was being thrown around. But, of course, if they're good enough, they're both good enough, it probably can work. So we had them at our disposal. And uh, on the Sunday night, we're picking the side uh, and we had a second state game on that same weekend so we had to pick a couple of teams so it was a three or four hour meeting and in those days it was uh, you know a bit of a favour they're all volunteers and so they'd have dinner whilst they're picking the side on a Sunday night at the old uh, 120 Jollymont. Did they uh, have anything to wash down the dinner uh, at those meetings? Not everyone could David Parkin was there Bill Goggin they didn't they just used the water and the mineral water and I Mm -hmm. I had the same but EJ used something a little bit stronger than that he just had a couple of sips of uh, a bit of a Chardonnay, I think he had. Anyway, uh, so that all ends after the three or four hours. We'd pick the two sides and barring injuries, that's the way it looked. Then I had a phone call the next morning. It would have been about 6 a.m. Well, who the hell is ringing about 6 a.m. in the morning? It's EJ. Hey. He said, how'd we end up last night? He said, I end up having a few. T- I can't even remember what we finished up doing. <laughs> and so I said, we've picked Lockett and Dunstall. Uh, so, so we then had to work out whether he told in his radio interviews uh, whether he gave up the secret or not. So he had to know the real story before he could spread whatever he wanted to thread as we let him loose. And then we get to the Saturday, of course, um, uh, it looked like Lockett wouldn't play. His knee had swollen up, but uh, Billy Goggin fixed that up. He got across to Dowling Forest on the Friday. They chatted about greyhounds for an hour and and the swelling went down, I think, uh, as Lockett and Goggin got on so well. Then the team meeting before that match, I'll never forget Billy Goggin calling Tony Lockett up to talk to the boys at the end of uh, the way the game should be played presentation by Goggin and he just got up and said let's get stuck into these blokes I'll make it clear Jason will lead from full forward I'm the tall bloke in the pocket I'll be the second ruckman um, you know if you want a long option for a high marking target I'll be that let's get stuck into these blokes over there and the boys all stood and roared mm-hmm. and at that moment I thought gee we're unbeatable and of course we went across there and uh, uh, the, the Vicks won by 90 odd points in front of 90,000 and then Teddy at the end of the game I'll never forget this because I heard Teddy tell the story many times. It, I was with him.
him in the coach's box as we come down and the, the media followed him down. He was given the, oh, we shoved it up and all round uh, as the cameras were rolling right round him. So he was in a, in a huddle of people as he approached the players out on the ground. Hadn't realised they'd swapped jumpers. And, of course, um, Michael Ace, the South Australian wingman, had switched with Tim Darcy, I think it was. And Teddy couldn't see that. He just looked for the first big V jumper and went and kissed the bloke on the, chi- on the cheek. It was Michael Ace. And later was to say, it was like kissing your sister. You get nothing out of that, kissing a South Australian. Uh, he told that story for years. And that's a true story, a true fact from that game. And such a personality he was. The crowd loved him. And, of course, that famous lap that years later, they loved him then too. 60-odd thousand there to celebrate what had been a wonderful life in, in football and, yeah. uh, uh, and a wonderful life in celebrating state of origin and getting the national competition up and running. Anyone who didn't have a tear in the eye that day was a bit too hard for their own good, I reckon. No doubt. Very special. I watched that lap from in the race. I was just behind Bobby Skilton and Donnie Witten uh, mm. watching that. Uh, I know how it unfolded too and uh, how Danny Frawley was so involved with it. Danny had worked with us and Ted at that stage unfortunately couldn't see at all. And so Danny Frawley become his eyes and in the rooms before the game was introducing the players, just whispering in Ted's ear, hey, this is this is Joe Mercedes, this is Mark McHugh, this is David Neitz coming up. He was just whispering those names so that Teddy could congratulate them as he always did that mm. famous handshake good luck son and call him by name he didn't want to be caught out for not being able to pick one from the other and so Danny was very emotionally involved with that that day and did a brilliant job on behalf of everyone that had played for the state So given all of that emotion given the, the passion that existed about it what happened to State of Origin? Are you disappointed that the clubs basically got their way? Because that's what killed it, wasn't it? It was self-interest from the clubs because our premiership is everything, whereas it's different, I think, in rugby league. Mm. Would you like to see State of Origin come back, Shifter? And is it possible that it may come back? Yeah, I think I'm a realist on this one. You know, I was probably passionate for a number of years as it started to, to wane. But really... It's all about the fans and the supporters, and now we have those crowds in Adelaide and Perth that that are roaring for their West Coast or or their Fremantle or or Adelaide or Port Adelaide playing against a Victorian side, whether it be Richmond or Collingwood. Um, They see the Crows or Port as their state team, Um, so it's it's difficult. They don't recognise that Ollie Wines now is a Victorian that's come across from the Bendigo Pioneers to play for them and is one one of their young guns, or that um, you know Shannon Hearn is in fact. Uh, the captain of West Coast is a boy from Angerston there in, in mm. South Australia, brought up there as a great cricketer as well as a footballer. So I think the draft has taken care of all of that. That the, I don't think maybe every 10th year or, or 50th year you might have a celebration type game like we did recently. Victoria versus the rest may work as an exhibition, uh, but... Uh, you know, I'm more in favour of letting the best players come together and be at a hybrid game called International Rules, at least play for their country against the Irish in what can be a very feisty contest. Uh, country versus country um, is, is probably replaced. And I know it's not Australian rules, but it's a great celebration of two great codes that have been developed, uh, well, 10,000 miles apart, other sides of the world that, uh, that are the most popular codes in their particular countries. And so I think that works for us. The players love playing that. 
uh, uh, from time to time, even if not every single year. Uh, and when you get 80,000 at Croke Park and you're playing for your country, it's a pretty special feeling as well. So I think uh, the state of origin just played an important role over a 20 or 30 year period in growing the national competition as it is today. Time is of the essence. So we're going to take our final break and then I want to get your opinion because everybody is spruiking the fact that this is going to be a sensational draft at the end of this year. You're the man who knows best and we'll find out from Kevin Sheehan what this year's draft is going to be like when we come back with our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. Our final segment with Kevin Sheehan. Shifter, everybody has been spruiking the fact that this is going to be a super draft. Do you concur with that? I certainly do, Pete. I really really think uh, it'll take us a while to reflect it might be a few years but it could be as good as 2001 the best ever draft in the 32 year history because 25 champions come out of that draft Um, we all know that from Hodge and and Judd and Ablett and you go to Stevie J and James Kelly it was uh, Dane Swan Mm. Brian Lake at the back so it ended up about 25 that you'd say had a very very significant career and uh, we've got our fingers crossed that it all unfolds uh, in that way who are the kids that we should be looking out for? Uh, the name Blakey has obviously come to mind with what's been going on over the last week or two. Yeah, Johnny Blakey's boy, Nick Blakey. He's a 196 centimetre, so he's six foot five that can play anywhere. Left footer uh, from the Sydney Swans Academy. He's decided to stay at Sydney. He could have gone to, to North or the Lions as well. So he's one. Uh, a name... Lacocious, Jack Lacocious. What a good name. Precocious. That'll be said many, <laughs> many. He's a precocious talent. A tall forward from SA. Um, magnificent kick and athlete that is really going to excite wherever he goes. He's going to excite uh, his fans and supporters of his club. A kid called Sam Walsh from down at Geelong Falcons. A brilliant midfielder. Speed, endurance, inside and out. Um, he's got a wonderful record. He captained the Australian under 8 inside earlier in the year. Um, Bailey Scott is a, is a boy that uh, is the son of Robert Scott, who played in that State of Origin game yeah. in 89 on the MCG. Uh, he's the best boy out of Queensland that is coming through as well. Um, uh, there's there's uh, just so many. There's the King twins, uh, Max and Ben King. Uh, Max has hurt an ACL, so he's going to miss the year, but uh, he's a precocious talent to it. 204 centimetres, wow. eight, six foot eight and a bit, and he's a twin brother, 202, just a wee bit smaller. Look, how's this for the the family to cope with? Um, Max does the ACL. On the same day, Ben switches forward playing for Halebury and kicks 11. Imagine trying to manage that at home. One's had the best football day of his life and the other's had a shattering injury. So those boys are great young boys that are going to end up in the AFL and uh, you never know, they might end up at the same club. We'll see how the trading goes later on. So they're just a few of, um, well, many young stars. Uh, Isaac Rankin from SA is another boy, a brilliant Indigenous midfielder. Uh, we really look forward to well, draft day. It'll be somewhere in November where uh, some brilliant young talent is going to emerge into the, into the AFL system. Just one last thing about the draft <clears throat> shifter over the years. We know that Chris Grant went at a ridiculously high number. I think James Hurd might have been the same as well. Was there one over the years that you thought, I cannot believe that he has got down to this number, apart from those two? 
I, th- I think that probably happens every year. Look, there was a boy last year, Sam Hayes, that probably an All-Australian Rackman back-to-back. Uh, they're the ones that slipped through. Now, Brody Grundy to Collingwood slipped through as the All-Australian Ruckman. So the Ruckman have been devalued a bit. The clubs are wanting them ready to run. Like, all of the top ten from last year have played already, yeah, up to around, you know, eight or nine in the AFL have all played. So this boy, Sam Hayes, who's, you know, 202 centimetres, is going to be a long-term player, but he mightn't play in his first year. He's ended up at Port at about uh, pick 30, uh, no, 43 or 44. Uh, quite amazing that uh, the boy that might be a 10-year ruckman in the AFL can slip through so far. Uh, and, and Grundy, as I say, at about eight or nine, and now he's probably the best ruckman in the comp. So uh, that's the thing that surprises me. They go for, it's like the racehorse, they go for the ready-to-runs. Yeah. It'll be out there uh, straight away having an impact and leave some of the taller ones for a wee bit later uh, on, on many occasions. So uh, uh, there, there are a couple of the boys of the modern era that probably have slipped through a bit further than you'd think. So it's a bit like uh, do you want one to run in the slipper or do you want one to win the Cox Plate a few years down the track? E- exactly. The same conversation. There are yielding sales coming up with our yeah. national under-18s. I look forward to them every year to, to seeing who bobs up. We know of 20 or 30 now, but there's going to be another 30 or 40 that'll bob up through these nationals and surprises and, and that's the beauty of going to these games. There's going to be a surprise or two in every match you watch. The game Games will be seen on, on Fox, five of the games on uh, the Fox footy channel too. So if you've got an eye for it, have a look. Have a look. Uh, it's not always easy, but you'll see some of these stars, the names were mentioned, right up the top of the boards. As I mentioned uh, during the program, Shifter, we've known each other for a long time, but one thing that hasn't changed over the journey is your enthusiasm for the game and your enthusiasm for the young talent. It's been great to catch up with you over the last hour. Thanks for coming in, and long may that enthusiasm stay with you. I'm sure as long as you're involved in the game, it will. Good to see you. Uh, Thanks, Pete. Been a pleasure. Kevin Sheehan joining us as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, and we will have another edition of the program same time next week right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.